morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the Holy Spirit that is present here, that understands us, that knows what he wants to speak to us and has a word for each and every one of us. To us as a, as a, as a congregation, to the church around the world today on Sunday, and even to us as individuals. So help us to be able to download all three formats of your sermon, of your message today, to be able to hear your heart out, Lord, to be able to hear your heart. This is my humble prayer. We all need you, and we need a desire to seek you. Oh, God, would you work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The name of the series, JC Profile. Uh, the name of today's message is Jesus Redeems. I've got four R's to, to, to cover the four messages. The first one was Jesus Reveals the Father. Today, Jesus Redeems the Church. Next time is Jesus Reconciles the Lost. And the fourth one is Jesus Resides in the uh, in the in the believer he resides in the church so we're going to be looking at the four hours over and today is this redeem and as we look at that i want to be able to answer questions like who is the jesus you worship who is the jesus you worship because it has been so tainted uh it has been taught it has been tampered with as to the vision the visual we have of christ and a lot of us look at the pictures on the wall and draw from that and imagine that that is the Jesus we're talking to. And the Jesus which is on the wall in the pictures, in many of the pictures you've seen on walls, in homes, he looks like he's just come back from the principal's office. Do you know that look? I'm familiar with that look. Maybe you're not familiar. Maybe you were a good student. But I'm familiar with the It's a very, you know, batilagi sort of, you know, uh, it's a very beaten down sort of, I don't know what happened. I, everything was going okay. It's a, it's a Jesus that's just, he doesn't know whether he's coming or going, as my mother used to say. And those images and the way Jesus has been portrayed as the suffering servant, the Jesus on the cross. In fact, many people wear a cross with Jesus still on the cross. That's a theological issue right there, right? So <clears throat> who is the Jesus? When you get on your knees to pray, when you cry out to God at a time when uh, you're going through a difficult time or your friend is going through a difficult time or sickness is in the home <coughs> or, uh, or a bill is to be paid, when you cry out to Christ, who is the Jesus you're crying out to? What is the vision you have of him? What is your understanding of who he is, where he is, how much he has influence, etc., etc.? That is what I want to influence through the biblical teaching of this passage in Colossians chapter 2. That is what I want you to be able to explain to people. I want you to be a biblically literate uh, believer in regard to this. So I want to invite you to know the real Jesus. You already know Christ. You already know Christ as Savior. But you know Christ as Sovereign King. You know Christ as sovereign kings, Christ on the throne, the pre-incarnate Christ, the post-incarnate ministry of Jesus, the advocacy of Christ, that kind of thing. I want you to know the all Jesus and not just the one who is like that, sad, pathetic, just, just came to die for sins and kind of still there, still on the cross. Oh boy, you need to know the risen Christ. Amen? Hey, that's the spirit. So Jesus died as Savior, but he lives as sovereign king. Somebody say amen. amen. Yeah. Jesus died as Savior, but he lives as sovereign king. And not just anywhere, but in heaven. He didn't 
become a man and he didn't become a sovereign king after incarnation. He always was. And that's the point of this whole message, this, this, this chapter. Whenever there's a chapter you read in the Bible, first question you ask is, why did the writer write it? Why did the author write it? Why is it there? And once you answer that question, you move on into your understanding of the text. So, Jesus has been, is, and is always God. Jesus is the God who is of heaven. He is the one. So we're going to understand that today. But then he became a man, and then we want to understand why he did that, for how long he did that, and what is the current position or status of that manhood uh, versus his deity. Okay? So, moving fast along, in this passage of scripture, uh, we are now in verse 14, uh, 15, but we want to go back to verse 14 just to see a small change. Paul has been talking about that he has, he has done this, he has done that in verse 14. But then in, he moves to verse 15 where he says he is, he is. So he gives us an insight into the person of Christ himself. So, which book is this? Colossians. Who is it written to? What can I say? You're brilliant. <laughs> so he's, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He's writing to the church in Colossae, hence the Colossians. Ephesus. Colossae. Brilliant. I, I told you, you're just brilliant. All right, so th that's why you didn't see the, the principal's office. So there was an error in the first century church around the person of Christ, around the person of Christ, especially here in Colossae. Especially here in class. Time out. I want you to remember something. The book of Acts talks about the birth of the church, the launch of the church, and the expansion of the church. The gospels talk about the leader of the church, the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospels. Uh, almost in January, February, March. Um, Matthew, Mark. <laughs> Quiet. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... John. Then you got Acts, which is actually Luke part 2. It's Luke 2. It's like Luke again. And, and basically, it's the same guy writing an expansion of Jesus' life and then the after, after that uh, with the church. Now, after Acts, then Paul comes onto the scene. He has this radical transformation. And then he explains theology in the book of Romans. So the book of Romans is what we call an account of salvation. It's the, it's the wonderful treatment of the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of sanctification, and the doctrine of glorification. What happened with my sin? What is God doing with me now? And where am I going in heaven? And God, uh, Paul works through that entire thing to the book of Romans. So when you want to talk about doctrine, teach doctrine, understand doctrine, you know, unpack doctrine, you want to go to? Romans, loudly, like you believe it. You want to go to? Romans, that's right. Okay? But after Romans, you have a lot of Pauline epistles. That means Paul wrote a lot of letters to the local churches. Now you've got to ask, why did he write so many letters when he's already written? Romans. Romans. Yeah. Okay? And the reason he wrote letters is because there were errors in the teaching, in the area, in the time, in that period. Are you with me? Corinthians, the church in Corinth, Corinthians... They were notorious. They were notorious. And you know that Corinth was, was a disastrous place with temples and all sorts of idolatry and uh, demon stuff and whatnot. And a lot of this started creeping into the church. 
And people started taking a bit of this and a bit of church, a bit of theology, a bit of Christ, and a bit of this, the, the practices, even the sins, even the kind of sacrifices, and they started merging that. And Paul is like, ah, and he would write a letter to them. In fact, 1 Corinthians, and they got two, like the Thessalonians. Okay, then you got Colossians, they had one strict letter. Galatians, Ephesians, got it? So with every church he would write a letter to, you have to ask, why did he write the letter? What heresy, that is wrong teaching, is he addressing? Now, Colossians. Colossians is a heresy, or they were, they were struggling with the heresy, about the deity of Jesus Christ, who Jesus really was. And the understanding in that time was that angels were an intermediary. Angels were an intermediary between God and man. And angels were the one who were going back and forth. Now, it's not completely, totally wrong. In fact, if you go back to Job chapter 33, you will see even Job saying, isn't there one angel that can, in all the millions, that can come and help me try and figure out who this God is and what God is thinking? Can somebody tell me what God is thinking? Can somebody tell me what God, even Job said that in Job chapter 33. So I want you to get, uh, begin to understand the heresy and what Paul is talking to and what he is addressing here. So Paul, here Paul is addressing an error about the person of Christ and that is with specific regard to his deity, his supremacy, his supremacy. What was the error? That Jesus wasn't God, that he was one of like the angels. He had either become an angel or he was like an angel or he, became, he was a man who became like an angel and he basically became an intermediary, a godman, small g. A God-man between God and us. And they were trying to merge those two. I'll tell you why. The reason they were doing that is because this was a sect of both Christianity and other spiritualists who were of the opinion that spirit is good and material is bad. Spirit is good and matter is bad. Flesh is bad, spirit is good. So how can God be in the flesh? How can God be in the flesh? If God was in the flesh, it would be sinful. He would be given to lusts. He would be given to uh, needs. He would be given to indulgences. How can God be in the flesh? So they thought of flesh as bad. So you got an Adam who was without sin and then became cursed by sin. And now he is ravaged by sin like a cancer. Then you have a Jesus who brings in a new humanity and he takes on flesh but without sin. Born of a woman, not of a man. So he does, he bypasses the curse and he goes, born of a woman, he's still got the flesh, but born of God. Are you with me so far? So he bypasses the curse. He does not have the curse of sin in him. Being God, he is perfect and holy. So now you have a sanctified flesh, a holy flesh, a flesh, a body that is totally in sync with and under the control of and cooperating with the spirit. As Romans chapter 8 points out, that's where the teaching of Romans chapter 8, Romans comes in. Where is the spirit, the soul, and the body, and all are in sync with the spirit, and the Holy Spirit then comes into the, the believer's life. The Holy Spirit leads the spirit, the spirit leads the emotions, mind, and uh, will, and, and, and volition, and then the, that leads the body, and the body is put under sub subjection, and everything works so that even the body, even the flesh is sanctified. Everything is sanctified. So the holiness of the flesh is something they couldn't handle. They couldn't see how the flesh is. So they think of that. So then you say Jesus came in the flesh. They were not able to work. So far so good? You got the background? Okay. The most dangerous aspect of the Colossian errorist teaching was its depreciation of the person of Jesus Christ. 
depreciation of the person of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus was, is, and always will be, they brought him lower, they defined him lower, they valued him lower. Now to them, Christ was not the triumphant redeemer to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been committed, no. He was just a man who did a lovely thing, lived a lovely life, and aspired to take us and represent us to God or whatever. At best, he was only one of the spirit beings, that is angels, who bridged. He was an intermediary, the space between God and humankind, and he was one of those intermediaries. Now, what does the Bible say? In fact, man has always sought to have that intermediary. Today, there are saints they pray to. Today, there are the dead that they pray to. Today, there are angels that they pray to. There's all sorts of heresies. Man has always sought to have someone advocate for him to the unknown God, to the creator, the judge, the sovereign. Some believed angels were doing that for us. Okay, but 1 Timothy chapter 5, 2 verse 5, and here we can go to the text is, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man. Say it with me. The man, Christ Jesus. Say it with me. The man, Christ Jesus, one mediator. Not angels, not saints, not anybody else. One mediator. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. So Paul reaffirms the supremacy of Christ. He has not diminished in his deity, but he comes down in the flesh to be able to do a certain task in the flesh that had to be done in the flesh, and we'll explain that, and then he returns to all of his supremacy, to all of his glory. So he makes three profound statements here. He makes three profound declarations here, sweeping declarations concerning Christ. One has to do with his deity, because that was being diminished by the Colossian church. Number two was to do with creation. He's Lord of creation. Number three, he was Lord of the church. These three areas, he makes this. And that is what this chapter is about. You're intelligent. You're committed to Jesus. You got a pen. You got notes. Where's my notes? There's one page with notes. You got that? Yeah, wonderful. So you got seven things I want you to take down and we go home and have lunch. Sound good? All right. First, let's talk about his deity. He talks about his deity. He starts off with that. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. And the Colossians are reading that. And the covenant lifers are reading that. And both are reading something completely different. They're seeing it completely different. He is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word for image here is A-E or E-I-K-O-N. Or the English word we get from there is icon. Icon. He is the image, the representation. When you're looking for an Uber app, you look for the icon. The, it's, it's, it has everything within it. He's the icon. Even man is the made in the image of God. Is that not true? Yes, man is made in the image of God. But here's a problem. Man is marred with sin. Man is broken. Man has fallen. He is not perfect. He's not a perfect representation of God's nature or his holiness. But Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect, absolute, accurate image of God. Everything perfectly wrapped up in Christ. He didn't become the image of God. When he was born, he always was. So I want you to listen very carefully. I want you to listen very carefully. Here's where heresy steps in. So when you say Jesus is the image of God, who are you thinking about? That man in the picture on the wall. He's the image of the invisible God. No, it's not his incarnation. The Jewish man. The 5 foot 8, 5 foot 11 inch man. 
the Middle Eastern man, the son of Joseph and Mary man. It's not that Jesus who is the image of the invisible God. He is not the icon. Jesus was, is and will always be the face of the, of the Trinity. He has always been the one who has dealt with us. He dealt with creation. He met Moses. He met Joshua. He met the saints of old. He spoke to Paul in person. Jesus has always been the face of the Trinity. Jesus is the icon. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one whom you see as the front, the icon of what represents all that God is. You and I have always seen the image as the Jesus who is born in Bethlehem, born in Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the image of the invisible God. No, no, he's not. He's the image of you and me. He's the image of you and me. That is the image of you and me. He's also son of man and he's also son of God. So in his humanity, he is the image of you. In his deity, he is the image of God. Hard to understand? Yes. Are you going to understand all of it today? No. So chill. Put it on hold. Put it in the back of your mind and say, Lord, I don't get this. Give me understanding. This guy can't explain it himself. He looks confused himself. You explain it to me and the Holy Spirit will. So, he's the icon, the perfect, accurate, and complete image of that. And as you think about the image of God, you're thinking about the pre-incarnate Christ, the incarnate Christ, and the post-incarnate Christ, all being the one who represents God to you. And if he represents God, he is God. He represents God, he is God. Nobody can represent God in full nature and character without actually being God. So then why did he become a man? Why does he look like a Jew? Why did he walk the earth? Why did he struggle with pain? I'll tell you. Galatians chapter 4. Thanks for asking. But when the fullness of time had come, Galatians, God sent forth his son, born of a, interesting, every other man was born or begotten by a father. <laughs> Remember all the genealogy passages that you didn't want to read in quiet time? Those ones. All those ones. The 150 generations of he begat them and he begat them, he begat them, he begat them. When it came to Jesus, he didn't begat them. He was born of a... Because all he needed was an incubator. All he needed was to take on the flesh. So the angel said to Jesus... So, sorry, the angel said to Mary, this will be a child from above. And the Spirit of God will come upon you. And you will be with child. And we call it the Immaculate Conception. Where God retained all his godness and borrowed from Mary a humanity. For what? Read. To redeem those who were under the law. He had to become a man. He had to look like that Middle Eastern Jewish man. He had to look like a middle-aged man. He had to come in the form of a man because he's representing man. He represents God, but he represents man as well. And when he's representing man, he had to come under the law, under the curse, but without being under the curse. He had to come under to lift the curse of you and me. That's why he became a man. That's why he took on flesh, so he could go to the cross, so he could shed blood. Because without, say it, say it, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Like you believe it. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. See, see what I'm saying? 
So it is not the blood Jesus. It is not the human Jesus that is the representation of God. God is God. Jesus is God. But he took on a flesh. So the more you detach yourself in your, in your, in your affection to Jesus, in your pray, praying to Christ, in your dependence on Christ, and understand who he is for all time, rather than who he was in the flesh, the more you will be able to trust him, and the more you will trust out of him. The more you'll be able to trust him for. The more you look at the Jesus in that picture on the wall, you're thinking, hmm, my coach in the gym has got more strength. I think I'd rather that. Or the money in my bank has probably got more strength. And you compare that in your visuals. Are you with me so far? Very good. So, moving forward and moving fast. Hebrews chapter 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Soak that in. Soak it in. He is the image. Here it is again. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So that's a supportive passage from the book of Hebrews. So by using the term icon, Paul emphasizes that Jesus is both the representation and the manifestation of God. He is the full, final, complete revelation of God. He is God in the flesh to think anything less of him because he looks like a Jewish middle-aged Middle East man. To think anything less of him is blasphemy. That's why I'm saying to you, when you walk with God, when you, when you talk with God, correct your image in your head of who you're speaking to. Because if you're speaking to the human Jesus under the curse who came to give his life on the cross, your faith will be limited to your perception. But when you understand who he is today, where he is and what he is, your faith will expand. So the first thing he talks about is his deity. The second thing he talks about is creation. He is born or the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn of all creation. So when we talk about the word firstborn, he is not the first of creation. Colossians, what is your problem, guys? Well, uh, uh, since he's firstborn of all creation, it means he was the first to be created, which means he was created, which means he's not God. He's the first of creation, but he is not God. And that is not true. So the word firstborn was familiar to the Jewish culture and to the, and to the Greek culture. When you said firstborn, we said, Das das bachyo Eight kids, nine kids, those, they, they used to do it in dozens those days. But one kid, one kid would be given the birthright. He'd be given the blessing. He'd be given, and only that one kid has right to all the property. It's not like India, where you divide everything, you know, all the land, everything down to the inch, and then the last kid also gets the last part. And then it goes to court, and the five kids can't decide how to spend that or how to divide it. And it sits in court, and the house starts getting dilapidated. It's not like that. One guy gets it. That's it. And it's usually a son. Deal with it. It's a son. But take that concept now and put it here. God has given firstborn position to Christ. It's a matter of position and ranking. So among all of creation, in all of creation, he ranks first. He is on top. 
He is number one. He inherits. He has rights to all the property. To everything. He is the firstborn of all creation. What's the heresy? Jesus was created being. He's the first of all creation. So he wasn't eternal. Therefore he's not God. But position is a rank. And the culture explains it to them. See, he has a right over all creation. Number three, write down. He created everything for himself. He's the one who brought it into being. Again, it's not the Jesus that went to Nazareth. It's not the Jesus that went to the cross. That's the body that Jesus took on. Same person doing it all in his deity. But he existed before that. I want to know that Jesus. I want to know the Jesus that with his mouth just spoke the worlds into existence. I want you to think with me. I want you to have a sanctified imagination. When you think about Christ creating the worlds, creating systems, the weather, man, sickness is a breakdown of that. Relationship problems are a breakdown of that. What Jesus created, Jesus can fix. What Jesus created, Jesus can recreate. What Jesus spoke into existence, he can speak out of existence. Are you with me? Who is the Jesus you pray to? Who is the Jesus you serve? And as you understand that this Jesus, without the body, before he went into the whole body thing and the weak thing, and the I'm standing before Pilate, you can't do anything except I, uh, you, know, you were given a thought. Before you get into that Jesus, get into the Christ who was the one who spoke the worlds into existence. He spoke time into existence. He spoke us into existence. He created us with his own hands. For by him, all things were created. What? All things. How many things? All things. How many? How many things? How many? How many? How many? All things. In heaven? Yeah. In earth? Yeah. Visible? Yeah. Invisible? Yeah. Oh, we're talking different realms. Thrones, yeah, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. <laughs> this is not the Jesus from 2010 years ago. 2020, this is not, the, that Jesus was my savior. This Jesus is sovereign Lord. Are you praying to your savior or are you praying to the sovereign Lord? Are you walking with the savior or are you walking with the sovereign Lord? Are you thank the savior. But you worship the sovereign Lord. Thank you, Father, for sending your son 2,220 years ago. As a man, he shed his blood. Because by the shedding of blood, there's remission of sin. Because he gave himself for me, I was removed from the curse. And I have it. Thank you for your humanity. Thank you for your income. This Christmas, we'll thank God. We'll thank God for the humanity, for the humility, for the emptying out, for the, for the kenosis. We'll thank God for that. But the Jesus we worship. The Jesus we trust, the Jesus we run to, the Jesus we ask of is the Jesus who spoke time, space, and matter into existence by the word of his mouth. Every dimension of reality exists and Christ rules that realm. Can you see it? Christ rules it. Can you not see it? Christ rules it. Are you powerful over it? Christ rules it. Do you not have power over it? Christ rules it. Are you afraid of it? Christ rules it. Are you getting this? Are you getting this? There's nothing that Christ cannot and does not have power over. The Jesus you and I worship, the Jesus who is real, is over everything. Is over everything. Hold your questions. 
Hold your thoughts, suspend doubt, and understand who he is first, and then we'll take it to the next one. Number four, he pre-existed all things. He is before all things. Nothing existed before him. Everything got started out. That means he's the cause. Everything came from his will. Before anything was, he was. Number five, he sustains all things. In him, all things hold together. Circle the word hold or whatever your Bible is telling you. The word hold. From the atom to the human heart. From the atom to the human heartbeat. God holds it in his hand. What sustains the atom? What sustains the heartbeat? What sustains creation as it is? Even science hasn't figured that out. Even science hasn't figured that out. They've gotten down to the atom and they've called it the God factor. <laughs> God holds it by the word of his power. He speaks into the existence. He holds it and sustains it. And when he's done, he will click his finger and it'll be done with. It'll be over. It'll disintegrate. It'll dissolve. He is before all things and in him all things work together. Now Paul moves to the church. Now Paul moves to the church. I'm getting close to the end. Cheer up. Jesus' supremacy as God. Jesus' supremacy over creation. Jesus' supremacy over the church. Jesus redeemed the church by giving his life for it. That means he owned it from start, but then he gave his life for it, which means he bought it back again. That's what redeem means. Redeem means to buy back again. So when I buy something back again, I doubly own it, which means I'm doubly worthy of my rights over it. Jesus is doubly worthy of our worship, and he's doubly worthy of uh, the rights of the church. He is the head of the church. He's the head of all creation. He's the head of the church, his body, his people, whom he shed his blood for. He has lordship rights over the redeemed. He starts, he ends. So write down, he is lord over the redeemed. Number seven, he starts and he restarts life. Same idea here again. He's the first spawn from the dead. He ranks highest. He's not the first person to be revived from the dead, to be resurrected from the dead. There were people who did that before. Yeah, he had raised people before. So he's not the first, but he's the firstborn. And you know what firstborn means now. It's a rank. It's a position. It's a title. Why all of this? All within that one last statement. He has full rights over his creation and over his church. Jesus has full rights over his creation and over his church as God. Why? Underline that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the will of God for you, for the church, for Christ. That in everything he might be preeminent. Look up the word preeminent. That in everything he might be preeminent. Look up the word everything. That in everything he might be preeminent. Let me show you something interesting as I close. Let me show you how God is thinking. Okay, God the Father, how he is thinking about the Son. Romans in chapter 14, he talks about judgment and judging people for sin. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, you do, or why, do you despise, why do you despise your brother? You got it so far? Are you with me on the screen? Okay. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? And, and you, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I'm trying to prove a point here, telling you how God the Father thinks about Christ. Here. 
For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, say it with me, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue. God the Father is saying every knee will bow to me. Okay, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Okay, let me do that again. As I live, says the Lord. He's swearing by himself. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Change of our perspective and understanding the real Jesus and what God is thinking. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 2. Little bit of backstory. Have this mind among you which is in Christ Jesus. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God, didn't call equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He became nothing. Born in the likeness of Men, image of men, ah, and being found in human form. There you go. Being found in he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Not just any death, but the death on the cross. Therefore, aha, therefore, God has highly exalted him. He was already exalted. He was holding the highest throne, but he went to the lowest place and now is doubly worthy of the being in the highest place. Doubly worthy of all the worship. Doubly worthy of all the praise. This Jesus became nothing to the point of death. Therefore God is highly exalted, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Here it is. Here it is. So at the name of Jesus, every, say it with me, knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And you're not getting it. You are not getting it. Go back to Romans chapter 14. Why do you... Again, why do you? Okay, next sentence. For we will all stand judgment seat of God. And then God says, as I will, as I, as I live, every knee will bow. <clears throat> every tongue will confess. <clears throat> then you go to Jesus and he says, Jesus was humbled. Jesus was exalted that every knee should bow and every tongue should He's not talking about everybody becoming a Christian. He's not talking about worship. He's talking about judgment. He's talking about judgment. Read John chapter 5 verse 26. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to also have life in himself. Okay, here's the big one. And as he has given him authority to what? Execute judgment because he is the what? Son of man. So the Jesus who came down and gave himself, took on flesh, shed his blood, that Jesus has been elevated not just in his deity but also in his humanity to be the judge of all men. So Jesus in his deity is Lord of all, sovereign God. Now Jesus in his humanity is lifted high. In splendor and majesty, he's been sanctified and glorified so that even the Jesus in his humanity is worthy of all our worship. And he, the Jesus, who walked and talked into the, into the temple and out the temple, into the synagogue and with the disciples and at the well, that Jesus will be judge of all the earth. Change of perspective. Every time you said and I said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, we thought finally there will be a complete conversion of the whole world. True or not? True or not? Wrong. 
What he's saying is that this Jesus has been raised to judgmentship. He has every right to now judge every other man because he gave his life for him. This Jesus is now has the right, he has the authority to judge every man's eternity. Where they will spend their eternity. Because he gave himself to buy and redeem them. Second R, redeem. This Jesus will bring every man to his knees. This Jesus will bring every man to his knees. Every knee will bow. Somebody say amen. He's not saying every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Everyone will be brought to their knees. Every single one. And it is to this Jesus who in his weakness walked the earth. In his weakness taught. Those critics, they had no idea who they were talking to. For the Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That's his messianic title for the incarnate Christ. Let me close. Your favorite part of the sermon. I know because it's mine too. Because after this is lunch. Couple of things. Jesus has redeemed creation and the church. He has redeemed creation and the church. So he has every right to our worship and our obedience. He, has already, he, is, he was already firstborn. He was already Lord. But by his humility and sacrifice, he is even more worthy of our worship and our sacrifice. Do you understand that? Did you understand that? This church, you don't come for an experience. You come for education. You come to understand the truth. You come to learn the truth. You come to live the truth. Number two, Jesus will judge the world. Hear me right. Hear me online. Jesus is the one who will judge the earth. God has given all authority to him. This Christ in humanity, Christ in deity, call it what you want, put it together. He's the one who will take the throne. He's the one who will bring everyone to his knees. He will judge the earth. The evil, the pain, the wickedness, the wars, the rapes, the injustice, the lynchings, the discrimination, the murders, the racism, the abuse of women, the abuse of children, the abuse of the weak, the abuse of the marginalized. There is going to be an accounting for. There is going to be a judgment. And that face is going to be awfully familiar when they stand before him. It's Jesus. Pilate had no idea who he was dealing with. He was talking to Jesus. He had no idea because Jesus was camouflaged in flesh. The disciples had no idea. They were walking and they sat with him and they, they grumbled over food and water and fish. They had no other idea. They sat in the presence of the majesty of heaven. He stood there. He sat there. He slept there in all of his humility. Angels looked at each other. One of the others they looked down and they're like, they have no idea who he is. They have no idea who they're talking to. Demons trembled in his presence. They recognized his majesty. Even veiled in the flesh, they recognized who they were talking to. We know who you are, Jesus. 
The angels knew who he was. They announced his birth. The demons knew who he was and they fled his presence. The Satan, he knew he was and he dared to attempt to tempt him in the flesh. The first time he tempted Adam with food. The second time he tempted Jesus with food. The first time he tempted Adam with something better. The second time he tempted Jesus with something better. The first time Adam gave in and Adam died. He was hoping Jesus would give in and Jesus would die. <laughs> Sorry, man. Satan knew who he was and he dared to tempt him in the flesh. Creation recognized his creator. The winds, the waves, the fish, the fig tree, they recognize who Jesus is. Only man remains. Man is the only part of creation. Jesus, who, who, who Jesus? Who Jesus? Who's this? Believers come to know him when the father opens their eyes. The church bows to worship him when faith and praise arise. Why do you wear a cross when Jesus wears a crown? I love that verse in the, in the, in the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Mild he lays his glory by, mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. I'm Jeremy Dawson and if you liked what you just saw, if it was a blessing, then hit the subscribe button. Come on, you can do it. Hit the subscribe button, uh, hit the bell so that we know you want to hear from us. Lots of videos coming your way, songs, worship, encouragement. Come on, subscribe. Let's take this forward and share with somebody you might know. Write a comment in the section below. But let's see you guys again. Come on, subscribe.